Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas. Thanks for being here. I am very glad. I have a question for you. It is a reflective question. I want you to fixate for just a moment on that difficult person in your life. Who is that annoying person in your life, that person who troubles you when you think about them? It reminds me of Lucy when she was talking to Charlie Brown. She said, Charlie Brown, every time that I look at you, I feel a criticism coming on. When you look at that person, who is it? Who is your Charlie Brown? Now, maybe for those of you who spend too much time on the X platform, this will be easy for you to answer because you're just scrolling through and you're just irritated every time that you scroll. This person bothers you. This celebrity irritates you. What this political figure said annoys you. Now, maybe that's easy for you to answer because you have that person in your mind. But what about if we shrink our world down uh, to our immediate relationships? What about someone in your church, maybe in your cul-de-sac? What about that individual that's in your family, an extended family member, or maybe in your home? They bother you. It could be that the annoying and difficult person in your life, you happen to be married to that individual. And so who is the person, celebrity, political figure at large, or someone who is much closer to you that you see in more of a 24-7 context? I want you to fixate on that individual for a few moments, not to trouble your soul, but what I hope will happen over the next few minutes is that God will just lavish you with his grace, that God would just just motivate you and do that recalibrating work that we all need in our hearts. By the way, the content that I produced is not detached content, meaning I don't I don't write this stuff and I don't produce podcasts and and videos as though I am a detached Christian, meaning that this information doesn't affect me. No, actually, how I write content is that I have to be affected by the very thing that that I am communicating to others. Uh, We have a mastermind program here at lifeovercoffee.com where we train people uh, to do the work of discipleship. We teach them how to honor and effectively go out and, and do the great commission of making disciples. And I just told them last week, I said, what we don't want are detached counselors, detached disciple makers. We want affected counselors. We want affected disciple makers. We want people who have been affected by the gospel. Sometimes it it appears that some people communicate God's truth from their mouth outward, that it doesn't have a depth, a depth of insight, a depth of transformation. We don't want to be like that. We want to communicate God's word out of our hearts, that we have been affected first before we communicate these things. Therefore, what I'm going to share with you over the next few moments is, is not something that I have not wrestled with, I have wrestled with it many times, loving, difficult people, and I've been wrestling with it this week as well. And so this is not some foreign concept. And I trust as I share these things that it will help you, that God will lavish His grace upon you, and that maybe there will be some recalibration of your heart, perhaps, uh, 
some restoration in some of your relationships. By the way, if you're talking about transformation and change, and that is something that you're interested in, then I would encourage you to consider my book, Change Me, The Ultimate Life Change Handbook. I wrote this book for the person who is serious about transformation. They want to walk out repentance, but they do not know how. This book will do it step by step, and I encourage you to get the book, Change Me. We've actually had a few people to write in. These are unsolicited solicited testimonies where they have bought the book, Change Me, and they wrote in and said, hey, you know, this is what I think about the book. I appreciate it. And they shared these notes. For example, Jason said this. By the way, you can find all of these testimonies at lifeovercoffee.com. If you just scroll to the footer of our website, click testimonies, and there are a thousand here that you can read to see what God is doing in people's lives here at Life Over Coffee. But Jason wrote in and he said, I have a church member I am counseling right now. He is reading Change Me, and he said that this teaching has been the most, has had the most impact on his personal life in more than 20 years. He said that everyone should read this book. You should just title it Change, he said. This is Jason who is talking here. And then Justin, a pastor in Springfield, Missouri. I actually know Justin. I've done a couple of conferences in Springfield at the church where he serves, and we're going back in the spring of 2024. But Justin wrote in, and he said, Recently I gave Change Me to a friend. She said it was the best book she had ever read on the subject. She also said it was the best counseling book she had ever read. It is a wonderful resource. Justin, thank you so much. Uh, for sending that in. It is quite encouraging. And then Tanya said, thank you for this ministry. I thoroughly enjoy reading the book, Change Me. Tanya, thank you for your note. And then finally, Bob said, the Change Me book is a great book. We're using it in our small group study. It is very informative and challenging. Thank you, Bob, for sending that in. And so whether you want to change me yourself or you want to use it in a discipleship one-on-one or do what Bob is doing here in a small group, I would would, uh, appeal to you to consider uh, getting it. Again, you can find it on Amazon, Change Me, The Ultimate Life Change handbook. All right, I want to get back to your troubling person, that person who annoys you. And again, I want you to fixate just for a few moments, not to amp up your soul noise, but I want you to have that person in in mind. And, And then I want you to juxtapose the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel juxtaposed to loving a difficult person. That's what I want you to have in mind for a few moments. Did you know that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost? Of course you do. This is what Luke said. It's one of, the, it's one of my favorite sentences in the four Gospels. And the reason is, is because it's short, but not just short. Every word in it is monosyllabic. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. How simple can we communicate the gospel? It is simple that way, but it can transform complex lives, even people who do not deserve such love, like maybe you and me. The death of Christ on the cross for undeserving people is the primary example that teaches us this grand and imitatable truth of loving our friends and loving our foes well. 
You see, Christ doesn't ask us to do things that he is unwilling to do. He became the tested and the sympathetic Savior, giving up his life for those who did not deserve such great love, making him the reason that we should not forget this transformative aspect of our biblical heritage. It is our history. As we look back, we see a dying Savior. There's two words you can juxtapose, a dying Savior. How can it be? But that is the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And the gospel can empower us to love people who are unlovable, particularly those people who annoy us those people who rub us the wrong way. Now, let me give you a big caveat here. Paul said that we should do everything that depends upon us to love people. There are some lines that you should not cross. There is a demographic out there that I would not recommend that you, you talk to the fool. Don't answer a fool. Uh, there are some people that are dangerous, and I'm not asking that you uh, put yourself in harm's way. But I think you know uh, who the people are that you should love, who the people you are that you should think charitably about. James said in 4.17 that to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to that person it would be sin. And so, yeah, this is not an, a blanket statement that we should love everyone pursue everyone, try to restore everyone, there are some people that maybe you just should stay away from. But you know, being honest with yourself, you know who those people are that, that God places in your heart that you need to think well of them. You may not ever pursue them, but they are made in the image of God. You may never agree with them. You, you may never go to their side. I'm not recommending that. But they are fellow image bearers, and we cannot hate them. And so love is a, a broad term. Sometimes love means that we have to courageously confront people. Other times, love means we need to comfort people. And so when I use love your enemies, I'm not coming from a cultural-centric perspective that it is a gushy kind of love that has no teeth in it at all. But we need to love those. Paul said it this way in Romans 12. He said, bless those who persecute you. Think about that. There's a bumper sticker. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, that's a good statement there. At least give thought I mean, maybe you can't go because that person is such a fool that you would be casting your pearls before swine. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then he finishes with this sentence, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now that is Romans 12, verses 14 through 18. Paul, a direct disciple of Jesus, provided his perspective about interacting with people who do not rise to our expectations. They do not meet our preferences. 
Paul did not pull this bless those who persecute you cliche out of thin air so we could stick it to our rear bumpers. God inspired him to write those words, and those words can cut against the grain of proud hearts. Loving difficult people is the way of Jesus, and we were those difficult people once upon a time. Peter, another direct disciple, he shares a similar but I think more acute thought about how to respond to difficult people. He had firsthand knowledge of how Christ dealt with sinful people. He walked with the Savior for three years. His evidence is overwhelming, and his evidence should have a humbling effect on us. Listen to Peter's sobering words that he gives us in his book. He says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now that's the hard part. He goes on to say, For what credit is it if, if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? Yeah, of course, you do bad and you suffer the consequences for doing bad. That is expected. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he gives us this powerful sentence. For to this, enduring unjustly, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And so, may I make this personal? What I want to do is I want to extract this thought from an old book in the Old Testament, the book of Jonah. Jonah was a racist and I want to talk about our racist friend by extracting a part of his story from part of his book and, and, and plant it in our modern hearts. And so will you go back and think about an annoying person in your life, someone who gets under your skin? What are your thoughts about them? How do you choose to associate with them? Would you rather avoid them or pursue them, assuming that you should pursue them. Your responses to my questions, it will test your understanding of and your faithfulness to the gospel, the redemptive work of Christ. And so when I'm talking about the gospel here, the gospel is like a multifaceted diamond. I mean, the gospel has existed in eternity past. Christ is the gospel. He is the good news. The gospel will extend into eternity future. We will worship him. But there is an aspect of the gospel, of this one facet of this gospel diamond, and, and that is the redemptive work of Christ. He came to seek and to save the lost. God is a relentless pursuer whose goal for all Christians it goes beyond our salvation. Oh yeah, he pursued us and he regenerated us. We are born again. But he wants us transformed in the likeness of his son. And so what I'm talking about here is to our family, to our Christ, to, to Christians. I am speaking of our maturity 
post-salvation, now that we have been born again, how are we to grow up as newborn babes? As Peter talked about, we desire the sincere milk of the Word. But then the Hebrew writer said in chapter 5 that we need to be eating meat by now. And so perhaps you have a spouse who challenges every fiber of your being when it comes to loving like Jesus. Maybe one of your children has disappointed you one too many times. And you have weak resistance. And your desire for redemptive, restorative parenting is just waned at this point. What about that church member who tempts you to sin each time you think about them? How about your extended family members? What about people groups in your culture out there on X or maybe some other social media platform? How about the gays? How you think about them? The abortionists, Democrats, Republicans. What about lazy people, obese people? How about women drivers? Okay, how about men drivers as well? I mean, you could clump all your annoying people into one broad category. Here it is. People who do not do things your way. Those are the people that I'm talking about. Now, wouldn't that be true? Now, what about if you invert that thought? How many people in your life agree with you, but you're annoyed with them? That's rare. Typically, the people who annoy us the most are those who do things differently from us. And so regardless of who they are or what they do, God's call is the same. This is the Great Commission. God wants us to partner with Him to carry the gospel to them. And now I want to just jump in briefly into this old book the book of Jonah, share a couple of verses. I want to extract it and plant it in our modern hearts and see what kind of application. This is one of the beauties of, of God's Word. It is so relevant. People talk about God's Word being obsolete or being archaic. No, no it's not. It's old. You know, we're always looking for something new. Uh, we want to break through new authorities. We want to build our towers to Babel. We're always looking into the future. We're, we're progressive, greater, better, different. We want to be on the other side of history and, and, and stuff like that. You know, sometimes we don't need anything new. We actually need something old, something that's tried and true. And God's Word is tried and true. Here's a text of Scripture. This is Jonah chapter 1, the first three verses. Listen, and then we'll uh, talk about it for just a little bit. Now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah, uh, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Jonah, <laughs> go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. <laughs> but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so here we have God is calling Jonah to go and talk to these people over here. And Jonah hears the call of God on his life. He rises up. And he goes the other direction, not just goes the other direction, 
but he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, you think about that theologically. I'll talk about it in just a moment, but that's actually not possible. Uh, the word we're talking about here is omnipresent. God is everywhere all the time, always has been, always will be. And so Jonah, in, in his hatred, uh, in his disdain for these people, he is running, and I put that in air quotes, he is running from the presence of the Lord. The primary purpose of the book of Jonah was God's call for him to go to a people group who are not like him and to tell them about the Lord. That is what the book is about. And their primary differences that, that distinguished them from Jonah was their ethnicity and their religion. They worshiped a different God, and they had a different color, skin color. They were Ninevites. Jonah's problem would be similar to asking an American Christian to go to an Afghanistan Muslim to tell him about Jesus. And when Jonah received the call from God to go to these people, he reacted by running the opposite direction from where God was calling him to go. I kind of laugh at this, but I'm also recognizing that I'm, I'm laughing at myself too because I am not that unlike Jonah. And I imagine many of you are not either. He went to Tarshish. It's like being in Columbus, Ohio, and God calls you to, to New York City, <laughs> but you choose to run to Seattle, Washington. Rather than going 500 miles northeast from Columbus to New York City to Manhattan, you go 2,300 miles west, northwest, in the opposite direction. I do find it difficult to be hard on Jonah because of this Hummer log that projects from my eye socket influencing how I think about my running friend. And I trust you see the log in your eye, too, as Jesus, Jesus talked about in Matthew 7, that we should address the log in our eye before we go speck fishing. And before we go speck fishing with Jonah, we need to uh, think about that log. And that log does influence me, and that's why I have a hard time. I can't judge Jonah uncharitably. Now, God has not called me to go to an uncomfortable culture. But he has called me to interact with uncomfortable people. How about you? The individual or the demographic, the people group, that the Spirit of God has brought to your mind, as I have been asking you those questions earlier, is likely your disappointing person or your disappointing people group. It's that annoying person in your life that you would rather avoid than respond to redemptively. Jonah physically ran from the Lord, which is something that you probably have not done. I, I have not, but I suspect that if you are like me, you have run from the Lord in your mind that we are mental runners, that we are mental marathon men. You do this by pretending the problems between you and the other person are not a big deal or that the person or the problem does not exist. And so you can be in the church building on Sunday morning, sitting in proximity to them. You're not running to Tarshish 2,300 miles away. 
but you are a mental runner as you sit in an invisible silo, distancing yourself from them. I mean, the silent treatment is a classic example of this. Treating the person as though they do not exist. This is what Jonah was doing as he was physically running. Minimally, we can be mental runners who avoid challenging context or potential conflicts. Now, our culture calls it fight or flight. Now, I don't like this terminology because, well, it's not biblical. It lacks the gospel ingredients that's necessary to soften proud hearts. Fight or flight does not create restoration. It just creates more conflict or the avoidance of conflict. But it's not redemptive or restorative. It would be better to say that we could either redeem or resist. The solution is not to pick a fight or to run from the situation, but to attempt to redeem or to restore an individual or to restore a relationship, to cooperate with God. God is the primary causal agent. God is the one that redeems, but God calls us to cooperate with Him in His redemptive work, which is what He is doing with Jonah here. And we do that because we want to put God on display. So we could redeem, or we could choose to resist God by mentally running, sitting in our invisible silos. But that's really for futile minds. Running from God is futile. Someone anonymously said, trying to run from the presence of God is as futile as shoveling smoke with a rake. I don't know who said it, but that's a good thought. If Jonah had decided to redeem rather than run, he would have experienced great things with God. And though you may not be excited about entering a potential redemptive opportunity, that's a nice way of saying conflict. I'm not excited about it, but God is. And He will not only be with you, He will help you succeed at what He has called you to do. The type of mental running that we do it happens because we forget that we are living in the presence of God. Think about that. Going back to our big word, omnipresence, God is everywhere at all times. He can never not be anywhere. He is always everywhere. And so thinking that we can run from the presence of God, whether like our marathon man, Jonah, or mental runners, that is a severe doctrinal amnestic mistake. After all, our omnipresent Lord, I mean, David said it this way, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? The Hebrew writer said this in 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Imagine, just for a moment, if our theology were better than Jonah's because we have a, a full transcript of, of God's Word. Imagine being more aware of who the Lord is and, and how He works in our lives because we have a Bible that He did not have. 
that he has never read. I mean, how would having this change the way that we interact with others because we know more? How would this change how we think about others? I mean, we know that we can't run from God because we have learned these doctrinal truths like, like omnipresence. And, and so physically or mentally running from God, no, God is with us. As John said in chapter 1, Jesus tabernacled with us. God always wants to be with his people. And as we learn in John 16, the Spirit of God has now come. And now the Spirit of God tabernacles in us. He is always there, always persuading, always appealing, wooing, always searching. At the moment of God's call on Jonah's life, none of this mattered to the marathon man. He acted as though he had theological amnesia. Minimally, his theology was not driving his actions. I mean, maybe he knew. Maybe he did not know the word omnipresence, but he knew intellectually that he could not run from God. But that knowledge was not driving his actions. His sinful biases, his sinful pre pre preferences motivated him to run from God's clear directive. When I read the first chapter of, of Jonah, several questions popped into my mind. Now, what I would like to do is, is I would like to share some of these questions to you. And typically, uh, when I do something like this, I have CTAs at the end. But this is your call to action right here in the middle. And I would like for you to work through this call to action. These are just questions that popped into my mind. And I would, I would like for you to think about God's call to do what depends on you to live at peace with others. And so here's a few questions for you to consider. Now, by the way, this is the halfway point. And so uh, you can just mark this in your mind, the 30-minute mark, and you can go back and you can replay these questions at the 30-minute mark uh, of this presentation here. All right, so question number one. What is God calling you to do specifically with a difficult person? That would be something to write down maybe. For those of you who journal or talk to a friend, what is God calling you to do specifically with that difficult person that you have in your mind? Number two, what message from the Lord is clear to you? I referenced James 4.17 earlier. To him that knows to do good and does not do it to that person, it is a sin. And so what message from the Lord is clear to you, but you are physically or mentally running or silo-sitting, the silent treatment, distancing yourself? Number three, how would a daily awareness and sensitivity to God's Spirit living in you animate your thought life and compel you to walk with Him to change you? We, we don't want to dissociate. We don't want to create a dichotomy that doesn't exist, a dichotomy where we split in two, where we, we pretend that God is not inhabiting us. We pretend the Spirit of God is not in us. No, the Spirit of God is in all Christians, and we can grieve the Spirit, and we can quench the Spirit. How would a daily awareness and sensitivity to God's Spirit living in you animate your thought life and compel you to walk with Him? 
Number four, if you were keeping in step with the Spirit rather than running from the Spirit's eliminations as He engages you with His Word, what would be different about your thinking? What would be different about your life? Number five, how would your awareness of the indwelling Spirit impact the fantasies that tempt your mind? This is a type of mental running that we can do as well. We can dichotomize our life and, and we can indulge in idolatries or fantasies on the internet or anyone anywhere else. We can create this theater of the mind where we indulge in these fantasies as though we are running from God, as though we're distancing ourselves from God when He is calling us to stop doing that. How would your awareness of God dwelling in you. We can't dichotomize that as though the Spirit of God doesn't indwell us. Number six, how would it affect a decision you know you should make? What is that thing that you know you should do? Number seven, what area of your marriage is God calling you to change? For some of you, God has pinpointed that I need to do this in my marriage and I can't mentally run. I can't be Jonah. I can't go 2,300 miles to Tarshish when God is calling me to do this thing in Manhattan. Number eight, what is the Lord asking you to do differently with your family? Number nine, is there a business decision you should make but you're avoiding, you're mentally running, avoiding. Number 10, how should you engage your neighbors differently? Is God calling you to better financial practices? If so, what is your plan? Are you avoiding this, running from this? Fiscal stewardship? Number 12, what would be different about living in a community with others if you kept in step with the Spirit? Three more. Number 13, what about your angry or frustrated thoughts regarding God, assuming if you have any? And when I say angry at God or frustrated thoughts about God, I'm talking about disappointment with God. Did you know that there are many Christians that have this low riding fever? It just runs under the surface of their lives where they just, they're discontented and they're disappointed. They're not living as though God is sovereign, that God is orchestrating, that God is with us, that God is guiding us. One of the most beautiful passages in Scripture is Genesis 39. It says that God was with Joseph. Just those two words, with Joseph. That was right in the middle of the context of Joseph being extracted from Israel and planted in Egypt where he never left alive. They did carry his bones out of Egypt later on. But God transported him to Egypt through horrendous circumstances. And right there in Genesis 39, it says God was with Joseph. There are a lot of people who are discontented and disappointed with God because of the life that they, they have. What are your angry or frustrated thoughts regarding God? Number 14, are there secret places in your mind known only to you and God? And then finally, number 15, do you live with a constant awareness that God is in all places at all times and has all knowledge of all things, including the thoughts and intentions of your heart? Now, that's a long string of questions. I realize that. Again, you can go to the 30-minute to 35-minute mark in this presentation here. 
in this episode. And you can get those questions and work through them. You can write them down. I would encourage you to do so. Uh, and, and if you, again, if you're not a journaler, I would encourage you to have a conversation. It's all of those will not apply, but they are eclectic on purpose so that it could address as many of us as possible. Of course, most of them do apply to me. If Jonah knew anything close to what we know about God, he undoubtedly pretended as though he was ignorant of those things. He acted as though God did not exist. And that's the point of those questions here. We can't act that way. Jonah was pressing the truth of God from his life. This is what Paul said in Romans 1.18, that the wrath of God rains down from heaven on anyone who suppresses or pushes the truth of God out of their lives. Imagine if he had a Bible like you and me. Think about all the sermons that we've heard, that we've, we've read, we've discussed, we've applied. How many blurbs have we liked on social media? How much of that dopamine courses through our veins daily? Yet we can dismiss God as though he does not exist. No, we're not running to Seattle, but we can run while sitting still. We can run in our silent silos. I most certainly have done these things. It's not a boast. I have been a pretender. Though the foolishness of pretending, it never changes the truth that God is always there and He is a relentless pursuer, especially of those who pretend to ignore Him. Now, if you go to the end of the book of Jonah, chapter 4, verse number 2, it says this, And Jonah prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee 2,300 miles to Seattle, or in Jonah's case, Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah knew that God was a good and gracious God. Jonah knew that he might save those blasted people in, in Nineveh. He wasn't ignorant of what God could do for those people. He wasn't ignorant of what God could do to his enemies. Jonah knew God was a relentless pursuer, which was part of the problem. He knew God might bless the Ninevites if he cooperated with God in the call. And in the book's last chapter, we learned this through Jonah's painful, but it was an honest confession. God, I knew that you would do this. I knew you would want to save those people. I knew that you, you love the enemies. Jonah's problem was far more profound than just running. I mean, you could say that he, he, he ran from them, and that is really bad. That's the action. But what motivated his running? Jonah had hatred in his heart toward the people that God was pursuing to redeem. And it gets worse from there. Jonah was criticizing God for being God. The text that I just read 
That's what he was doing. He was criticizing God for being God. Jonah was doing all he could to withhold the grace of God from the Ninevites. Jonah knew that if he relented and if he did it God's way, the Lord might save the Ninevites. And that was unacceptable to Jonah. Can you imagine the hatred, the annoyance, the disappointment that you would, the anger that you would have to have in your heart towards someone to not only run from God, but to have this ensconced hatred in your heart and then even go so far to blame God for being God because God would not do it your way. No, this is what I want you to do. I want you to punish them. I don't want you to love them. I don't want you to even consider redeeming them rather than doing what God told him to do. He ran. His response was a profound act of a man who is a prophet of God. You could say a, a Christian. Imagine it. It is sobering for us to take note of it and to examine our thoughts, to examine our motives regarding other people, especially, I mean, people that we do not agree with, people that we do not care for, people we do not like. Is there someone, is there some people group in your life that you hope would receive God's judgment rather than His forgiveness? Is there someone you would rather withhold God's grace from instead of extending God's grace to? Maybe the problem is not about differences in personal preferences. Perhaps the person you're considering that you have fixated on has harmed you in some way. I know that is a real possibility. For those of you who are aware of my story, have followed it in any way, I've, I've, I've said before, but I've, I've had two brothers who have been murdered uh, 10 years apart. And I, I know what it's like to work through uh, the anguish of soul when you have been harmed in some way. Uh, when the potential and the temptation to have hatred toward people because they have offended you or they've hurt you or they've done something just desperately wicked against you, as, as has happened to me and many of you carry that testimony as well. I know what that is like. But here's the thing is that hatred and, and bitterness only incarcerates the carrier. We can't forgive them if they never ask for forgiveness. We can't release them uh, for what they have done if they do not plead with God to find that release and find that forgiveness. But we can have an attitude. We can have a heart for them. Uh, we can be redemptive in our minds so that we are free from what they have done, and we can even go so far as to appeal to God to, to save them, to transform them. And I know that becomes particularly hard when you have been harmed or hurt in some way. And I do understand that. But the question would be similar. Though they have done wrong to you, do you long to see the efficacious grace of God operating in their lives? Do you? Are you praying? Are you hoping? Are you seeking ways in which you can be a messenger of this blessing to your offenders? Now, caveat, 
If you let's, let's say you have been sexually abused, I am not suggesting in any way that you should go and, and evangelize or try to be a redemptive agent in that person's life. No, you stay away from that person. And so we're thinking reasonably here. But again, referring to James again, if you know to do good and do not do it, it is a sin so we can think reasonably. And there are some people that you should just stay away from, but you can still be free from them. You don't have to carry the bitterness and the anger and the hurt in your heart because that will only incarcerate you. And so maybe you're praying and hoping and seeking ways to be a messenger of this blessing would begin by asking God to release you from the hurt that you carry or maybe the anger uh, that is entangling your heart. The irony in this story of Jonah is that God's child was trying to run the furthest from God. I mean, God's child, not the Ninevites. The Ninevites were a long way from God, if we can put that in geographic language. But now we have God's child trying to run the furthest from God. All too often, this is the case. Religious people can be some of the most deceptive people. It is easy to hide under the shroud of religion while having a heart that actively works against God. This religious game is our temptation. It is a very real temptation. We can create a, a wide gap between who we profess to be and the functional life that we are actually living. Jonah had a gap in his life that God revealed, and then the Lord called him to respond redemptively to close the gap, not only the gap between the Ninevites and God, but the gap between Jonah and God, the spiritual relational gap that was between him and the Lord. A person God requests to do a complicated thing may want to run rather than pursue redemptive possibilities. And so Jonah ran because he did not have the heart of God. And the Lord wanted to expose Jonah's heart. God is a multitasker. And many times the hurt and the conflict that we experience in our lives, there may be redemptive opportunities out there for us to help them. But God is a multitasker. And He can work in our hearts at the same time he is working in the hearts of those who have persecuted or offended us. The Lord knew Jonah had a blind spot, and he desired to wake up his sleeping prophet and turn him around. Jonah had pockets of undiscernible disobedience in his life, which would only manifest when God challenged him to respond to God. Now, there's an irony here. In this ironic sense, Jonah was no different from the Ninevites. Think about this. Here are uh, four areas where we see the similarity between those despicable people of color uh, who worshipped a different God, but they were very similar to Jonah. And in many ways, we're not unlike the people that we dislike. For example, the Ninevites were living in sin. So was Jonah. The Ninevites needed to be exposed. So did Jonah. The Ninevites needed to be redeemed. So did Jonah. 
the Ninevites needed someone to call them out. So did Jonah. There is an ironic twist here, and we have to see that, that when we hate people, when we disrespect people made in the image of God, I'm not saying to agree with them. I would, I would never agree with the Ninevites. I do not agree with their religion. I do not agree with their practices. I do not agree with their worldview. But to hate them is out of bounds. To disdain a person made in the image of God and to work against them as far as being a redemptive agent in their life, that is out of bounds. And so let us then, this is what the Hebrew writer said in 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that is our first call to action. If we have hatred in our hearts toward anyone, and again, I'm drawing a line here. I'm not talking about agreeing. I'm not talking about accommodating. I'm talking about just pure biblical hate toward someone, whether we ever line up on the same team or not. Then the first call to action, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we refuse to respond to the call of God to help another person, then there are two people in need of help, us and the person that God is asking us to help. There's the irony. The book of Jonah is not about the Ninevites primarily. It is about God and his relationship with his prophet. God loves us too much to let us sit and stew in our anger. The remainder of the book of Jonah demonstrates that that God is a relentless redeemer and the lengths that he will go to to help his children to love him and to love others. These are the two greatest commandments as Jesus was laying out in Matthew 22. I don't have time to get into this, but as you you could just simply read the first chapter of Jonah. I only shared a few verses at the beginning. Uh, but it says that, that uh, God prepared a big fish from Jonah. And we all learned that in Sunday school. God prepared a big fish for Jonah because he loved Jonah. It also says that God hurled a storm at Jonah. All of this is in chapter 1. And when it says he hurled a great storm at Jonah, uh, the picture here is is a a strong man who holds a, a, a javelin, a spear, and he is hurling it. He is hurling this storm at Jonah. That's the idea there. Not only preparing a big fish, to swallow Jonah, but hurling a storm at him. God loves us that much. If Jonah's temptation tempts you today, the temptation to run, to hate, to disdain, then you're only a prayer away from God's lavish grace. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. You're only a prayer away. God calls on our, God's call on our lives. It, it requires transformation. 
because he wants to save us from ourselves, like what he was doing to his friend Jonah. He, God is not trying to ruin our lives by asking us to act redemptively toward others, especially those people who, who bother us, who rub us the wrong way. The good Lord knows the more redemptive we are toward people, the more we will have a heart like Him. And so we can stop. We can stop running, mentally running, or silently silo-sitting. We can turn around and we can run back to God if we are runners the big idea in view here is biblical repentance, that idea of going this way and then changing 180 degrees and going a different way. The idea in the book of Jonah is going to Tarshish and then changing and going 180 degrees the other way. We can run boldly to the throne of grace, asking the Father for a fresh work of His grace in our lives. If you're a runner, stop pursuing hidden idolatries. Turn to Him in faith, and you will experience the redemptive activity that He wants you to lavish on others. Now, if you want to read a full transcript of what I'm sharing with you, you can do that. Uh, you can go to lifeovercoffee.com. And all you have to do is just type in some version of this title, and you can have a full transcript. I want you to have that. It is a gift to you. The title of this is A Profound Reason to Love That Difficult Person in Your Life. Now, you don't have to type all of that in the search feature. Up in the top right-hand corner, the search feature. A profound reason to love that difficult person in your life, and you can get a full transcript of everything that I just shared with you. And if you go to the bottom of that transcript, there is a print button right in the middle, and you can print it off and have a PDF version of this, and you can share it with a friend. It would be an excellent study between you and someone, maybe, uh, your spouse if you're married, children if you have them, uh, if possible, to have this conversation with that person that annoys you, that could be a fantastic, transformative moment. So again, go to lifeovercoffee.com and look for a profound reason to love that difficult person in your life. Now, I have asked many questions throughout this. If you go to the 30-minute mark, the 30 to the 35-minute mark, you will get all 15 of those questions. Now, my appeal to you is to go through them with a friend asking God to reveal any hidden anger, frustration, annoyance. We're talking about self-righteousness here. Self-righteousness is a greater than, better than attitude. And by the way, God did not come for the righteous. There's no grace for the righteous because they, are, they already have what they need in their own mind. They are righteous. And so they don't need this alien righteousness that Christ offers. And so if we find ourselves in a self-righteous, greater than, better than attitude, looking down on other people, like the man standing in the temple beating his breast, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, especially this publican over here. That, that, well, this is, this is an old story, but it's repeated ad infinitum. In the Old Testament in the book of Jonah, there we have it in Luke's gospel with the rich man, with the person in the temple. And we have it in our lives as well as we look down on other people.
And so maybe getting together with a friend and asking God to reveal any hidden anger, frustration, or annoyance. The big word here is self-righteousness that we have toward someone. This would be a conversation for transformation. Now, perhaps you are working with someone who struggles with a difficult individual in their life. Perhaps what I've shared here will help them. And so consider a discipleship opportunity with them because they are struggling, not to condemn them in any way, and I know you won't do that, but to come along as a, a gracious restorer of that person to help them to see through the life of, of Jonah that God is a relentless pursuer, not just of the, the Ninevites, but of us as we run, mentally run, from those that we know that we should be interacting with and doing what Paul said, as much as depends upon us to live at peace with all people. And so my appeal is that whether it's you or a friend who stands in the need of God's lavish grace, there is no need to run. There's no need to run and go to the next thing. Spend time with this, as much time as you need, reflecting upon these truths. And again, if you want to read the, the transcript, go to lifeovercoffee.com, a profound reason to love that difficult person in your life. Now, by the way, uh, if you go to our store, we have uh, digital downloadable books, and they're free. We give most all of our stuff away, and I want you to have one. I just finished one. Uh, it's called Don't Apologize. Don't Say I'm Sorry. It is a very practical book on forgiveness, an e-booklet. It is free to you. There's others there as well in our store. And so go to lifeovercoffee.com. Go to the store and download those books. You can download all of them. They're free to you, and I want you to share them with 1,000 of your closest friends. If we can help you in any way, uh, just hit the button at lifeovercoffee.com and let us know. Ask your question. Also, we have a, a Rumble channel. Did you know that? Life Over Coffee. It's little. It's just getting started. But if you would follow us over there, we're dropping videos every day. Uh, from 30-second reels all the way up to longer uh, content, 30, 40, 50 minutes. And so there's all kinds of content and on our Rumble channel at lifeovercoffee.com. I mean, Life Over Coffee, rather. And so go over there and follow us on Rumble. And again, let us know how we can serve you. This is Rick Thomas, Life Over Coffee. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.